Hi, I'm Mark Haywood, and this is Behind the Spine, a podcast which finds learning opportunities for writers in the most unlikely of places. Like future ghosts, we're, we are always moving through a city or a space that is of the past and of the present simultaneously. The whole earth is the tomb of heroic men, and their story is not given only on stone over their clay, but abides everywhere without visible symbol, woven into the stuff of other men's lives. Pericles. Underneath the ground we walk is a place just out of reach, a world that once lived and breathed, but whose memory is locked away like a time capsule beneath our feet. But even though it's buried, its influence on our world can still be felt. Most often, we just stride right by it, but sometimes we dig deep and find glimpses of the past. Other times, it explodes to the surface without warning. Just a few feet below even the most inconspicuous of places, a treasure trove of history can be found. Take, for instance, the car park in Leicester, which turned out to be the resting place of Richard III. London Clay Journeys in the Deep City explores London's history through its hidden landscape and the ghosts of its past. The book's author, Tom Chivers, is my guest today. Chapter 1. The City Below London Clay is an interrogation of the city's past, taking us on a journey through abandoned tube stations, ancient riverbeds and Roman ruins. With the level of research that has gone into it, you can see why it took Tom seven years to write. It feels like an investigation or a detective story, examining London through its geology as a natural landscape. The book's goal is clear, to make the reader think about the city differently, to look at it in finer detail, perhaps even more conscientiously. At points, it feels as though Tom surprises even himself with what he uncovers. It definitely does have that that sense of, of investigation. The actual method that I used or developed really through writing the book was a complete combination of desk research, you know, hell of a lot of Googling, um, reading quite obscure books about London history, and then of course, doing the walking. And it wasn't like I was researching and then walking or walking and then researching. It was kind of a little bit of research, a little bit of walking, a little bit of research, a little bit of walking. So the knowledge that I gained about some of these underground spaces or about geology or about geological mysteries in the city were often a kind of patchwork. So in that sense, I hope that the reader will kind of follow me on that journey of detection rather than, you know, me having all this knowledge and just kind of dumping it onto them um, at at the beginning. But there's also, you know, I was, you you talk about surprise and I was surprised and I'm very much somebody who believes that, you know, that, that, that you should go into writing this kind of book without knowing exactly what you're going to find. And that's certainly, you know, because I've written poetry for so many years, and this is my first prose book, as a poet, you're kind of, you're almost expected to surprise the reader and surprise yourself and not go in with a set plan. But when you're writing nonfiction, particularly when you've been commissioned by a big publisher, uh, you know, you do have a responsibility to tell them what you're going to do. So in a way, the resulting chapters are a combination of things that I intended to go and find, whether that was an ancient site or, or some kind of mysterious glitch in the city. And then the reality of what I actually found, and I, you know, I hope that I hope that readers will will be excited by what I did find, and not disappointed that I didn't find uh, the the ancient stone marker that I promised I would. Yes, there's a childlike fascination, I think, with with an investigation like this that that really comes through, and often it is, you know, both a literal and metaphorical journey that is the most important thing, not not necessarily where you ended up or what you discovered. 
London is, is, is fascinating. It produces things from the earth on a fairly regular basis. Unexploded ordinances from World War II would, would perhaps be the best example. The his, history is littered with examples of construction projects being delayed because we find these things. I was thinking recently about the Crossrail project and how many times that had had to stop to let archaeologists and investigators in to have a look at what had been discovered. I, I was particularly perturbed by the discovery of a of a black plague death pit, which, which <laughs> yes. seemed perhaps best left best left alone. But but London, it, we're used to this as Londoners, aren't we? This keeps happening. We keep finding things from the earth and we're reminded every now and again that there is a city beneath the city. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, some of the things that that I talk about in the book that were discovered, you know, these, these kind of Neolithic um, weaponry and bits of mammoth skeleton and stuff like that. I mean, they really are quite extraordinary. And as you say, this is this has been going on um, for, you know, uh, ad infinitum, really, certainly back into the 17th century in terms of amateur archaeologists discovering bits and bobs in the city. And there's a really lovely interplay as well between, between archaeology and history and that kind of more, you know, learned sort of academic side of, of uh, being interested in London's past. And then the, the very practical operations of building projects. Um, so as you rightly say, you've got Crossrail, that there are various other, but the Super Sewer, um, the Lee Tunnel, all of these huge infrastructural projects that are going on or have been going on over the last 10 years have yielded huge amounts of archeological data. And yeah, I, can't, I, I can sort of imagine being pretty frustrated if I was an engineer and having to, to stop digging um, so frequently to, to, to unearth some kind of you know, Roman body or something. I think what's what's equally important and kind of threatening in a way is not only historical artifacts being unearthed, but landscape features being unearthed that perhaps were were unanticipated in, in the kind of the original projects. Um, so, you know, there's lots of examples of perched aquifers. These are kind of um, unexpected water features in the kind of floodplains of lost rivers disrupting huge uh, huge infrastructure projects uh, related to the tube. And of course, the, um, the mail rail in, in King's Cross, when they first built that, uh, there was a huge flood when, when a, a kind of geological um, glitch known as a, a drift hollow was discovered. So I think there are, there are kind of lessons to be learned about to what extent do we disrupt that city below and to what extent do we allow it to, to kind of exist. Chapter two the violence of the city. The notion of the city beneath the city as a character in its own right is very prominent in London clay. The book shines a light on the brooding malevolence bubbling under the surface, delivering a palpable sense of dissonance between the present and the past. For all the pomp and ceremony and the love we have for celebrating the rosier parts of our history, we can never truly escape the gritty and unpleasant parts. But the present and the past shouldn't be seen as two different entities. Each influences and is guided by the other, all the good and all the bad. That's why it intrigues so much. Just like a well-rounded character in literature, it's layered and complex and forces us to think more deeply than we are sometimes comfortable doing. There was often this sense, as you say, of a kind of malevolent, brooding presence. And I suppose, um, you know, I've been writing about the city for you know, 20 years, um, mostly in, in poems. And certainly a lot of the early poems, I was interested in capturing that sense of kind of sub sublimated violence that is there in the city. And perhaps it's not something that everybody feels, but I've certainly always been, been kind of captivated by and, and, and almost threatened by that, that sense of, 
of the violence of the city. And, and in, in a way, I suppose that's, that has kind of dissipated into, into my writing of London Clay. There are certain landscapes in London which, which speak to you in, in such complex ways. I mean, one example would be the River Lee in East London, which I was really not very familiar with before writing this book. And what I discovered, and it was a genuine surprise, was the connection of the Lee to the whole colonial history, um, particularly of, of England's or Britain's colonial relationship with India. You know, you, have, you obviously have the East India docks at the, the bottom of the Lee, it's just to the west of the Lee mouth, but lots of the, uh, the Lee and the surrounding areas were, were owned by traders and by you know, East India men and so on. And, and it was just really exciting kind of being able to, to kind of draw together all these weird connections in that landscape and certainly trying to register that colonial violence that is kind of writ over the Lee if you look in a particular way. It's a city that works very hard at not allowing you to forget where you are. I've I've always felt that about London. I don't know whether it's the river. I, I think that has a huge amount to do with it and the fact that the river has clearly been a working river for a very, very long time and the warehouses that are now flats that are on the side of the river they remind you of what what london used to be and how things were were moved around but that 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 violence that malevolence it, it haunts the city i'm thinking you know particularly of of the here in the east end of of jack the ripper and walking tours that that we can go on I, you can pick up pretty much any dickens book and, and you can be in darkest winter in london and you get a sense if you read the likes of bleak house and, and you read the bit about the lord high chancellor and, and the fog the way he describes the fog there's this brooding malevolence um about the city which which i love maybe that says weird things about me i i, I don't know but these are the things <laughs> yeah. that i think are as worth celebrating as much as as the the history and the pageantry and and, and everything that's great about the city yeah absolutely i mean bleak house is probably my favorite dickens novel and certainly that atmosphere in Bleak House, um, I suspect, has has, um, has eked its way into into London clay, just like the kind of noxious vapours from the docks used to eke into the uh, the lungs of people who lived here. And I, I live in Rotherhithe, um, which is a Docklands, an old Docklands village, if you like. And there is certainly that that sense. I'm looking right now, actually, at a, at a, a Victorian grain store that's now converted into luxury flats. Yeah, there was a great TV program called Taboo with uh, Tom Hardy, which I thought really captured that. That, that sinister side to to London and particularly to the Thames at low tide. Yeah, I think it is. I think it is um, important to to address that side of London. Now, I used to live in Aldgate, um, which was Jack the Ripper territory, and you know sometimes you can kind of overdo the violence and and the kind of mawkishness of it. The, the, the Ripper tours, for example, I've never been a, a fan of because um, they're basically kind of reconstructing or or um, retelling those stories, which are stories of sexual violence in the East End, in streets which are still, to some extent, plagued by, by prostitution and drugs. And, and, and I always found it very uncomfortable, that kind of uh, historical reconstruction. So I think it needs to be done with, you know, with, with thought. Yes, completely. You mentioned you know, noxious vapours. There is a real sense of smell, which I know sounds ridiculous about uh, a piece of writing. However, it's not ridiculous. It, 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 I genuinely think that you should write for all of the senses and smell certainly comes across. It makes you wonder what the city used to smell like. I, I don't want to know what it used to smell like because I can probably guess, but that sense of, 
aroma. And this came up in our in my conversation with Laura Maclan, where we talked about mudlarking and we talked about the smell of the foreshore at low tide and, and how it was different when you stepped across the threshold and onto the foreshore. You can almost smell the history. There is a, a piece in the book where you find yourself in the crypts of churches or, or in sort of narrow confined spaces where you think there is a sense of actually is there a door here does it go you know somewhere I I got a real sense of what that must have felt like I could feel perhaps the shivers I could smell the dampness in the air it's all part of the story isn't it it's not simply an exploration of what lies beneath it's about what it's like to be there in that moment the question Tom I had does that mean then that being in that space do you feel the weight of the responsibility when you're there to almost tell the story of the space you find yourself in I don't think responsibility is the word I certainly feel the the, the, the weight of history as it were I mean it's a cliche isn't it the weight of history I think that I don't know does does weight does history have a mass I'm not sure that it even exists as a separate kind of entity to to how we currently presently experience the city um, I've been very interested in this idea for a while of what I call the historicized present. So this is the notion that we're moving through almost like 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 future ghosts. We're, we are always moving through a city or a space that is completely um, of the past and of the present simultaneously. Um, I mean, Eliot writes about it very well in in, um, in the Four Quartets and, and the Wasteland, of course. And I think that's really how I experience some of these strange spaces, these crypts and, and sewers and so on. A lot of the places I went to are not places that are inaccessible. Yes, I did go into the fleet sewer and I also went down into the basement of government offices, Great George Street. Um, those are both off limits. But a lot of the places I went to are, are completely accessible to anybody, but still can have this kind of extraordinary impact on you psychologically when you go there and you know about the hidden histories. Um, and sometimes I preferred actually going to places like, you know, the Travel Lodge in King's Cross that was the site of a prehistoric kill site in some ways they are more romantic than than going somewhere like you know like a fleet sewer um, which has almost become a kind of stopping a stopping point for people writing about underground london this is not a book which is kind of a comprehensive look at all the underground spaces in london it takes it, it just takes eight eight places and, and does kind of deep dives into those into those and, and as you say tries to bring at least i hope it tries to bring the reader into that space by really evoking how it feels and yes, how it smells. Um, it's really funny that you say that, that smell comes across because I, I do have an exceptional sense of smell, which is um, you know, probably to make up for my bad eyesight. <laughs> Behind the Spine is an attempt to inspire you to write and to shine a light on things that might provide a creative spark for your stories. Now we want to go one stage further. We want to offer you an outlet for your work. Over the course of the show, we've uncovered dozens of lessons that have been extracted from over 50 fascinating conversations. We've picked three, and now we'd like you to narrow this down to one. Pick one of the lessons we've selected and write a short story of no more than a thousand words and send it to us. At the end of the series, we'll pick two winners. We'll pay each writer £250 for the right to use their story as part of series four. Go to behindthespine.co.uk and click on the writing competition for more details. But now, back to the show. Chapter 3. Listening to Ghosts Tom questioned whether the past really does have a weight. And even though logically we can say it doesn't, 
How then do we feel it so prominently? Why do we get a tingle down our spine when we learn about the history of an object or place? Even without a mass, history can still be felt. As previous guests of the show, Lara Maclem, told us. I lived in a very old farmhouse and just touching the walls, you could feel the, you could feel the history and you could feel all the lives that have been lived. Little details allow us to capture the essence of what went on in the past. For example, during World War II, hundreds of people hid in tunnels beneath Surrey, living below the ground for a large part of the bombing campaign. After the war was over and everyone had left the tunnel, it took over a decade for the temperature inside to return to what it was before. Tiny touches like this show how non-fiction writing can also be literary writing, something that Tom's book captures beautifully. What you were saying about the tunnels in Surrey, yeah, it's a lovely detail and it's a lovely, it's a fact. It's not, it's not some kind of magical code or anything like that. It's, it's a scientific, a measurable fact. And I was particularly interested in London clay to, to do a lot of research about geology and archaeology and hydrogeology and uh, a lot of things that really are kind of um, above my, my, uh, my pay grade. Um, and to, to, to hold those in, in the one hand, while simultaneously being completely open to that kind of the magic of of feeling and the sensation, you know, and sometimes that does lead lead you in the book into into slightly kind of I suppose you might call it the occult, or certainly a sense of spirituality, or or the kind of the the kind of resonance of a place that can't actually be measured by you know scientific or technical tools, but, but you just kind of know it, you just feel it. And that's why at the end of the book, not hopefully not giving away too much, I, I go to I go to, to make a recording. I try to record for ghosts. I don't actually say that I'm going to record for ghosts, but it's it's implied. I have a microphone set up and I go into a very dark space with a, a very a important personal connection as well as a historical connection. And of course, I hear nothing, um, and it's a failure. And that's that's okay as well. It's the for me, it was the process of being open to to listening to ghosts, whilst at the same time. Um, you know, there are there are some, some proper kind of scientific and, and historical facts in the book. But yeah, to hold the two in, 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 in the same hand, I think is really important. Do you have a, not perhaps a favourite, but, but there was a sequence of the um, of the book that um, that resonates more with you than, than any other? Yeah, it's a really, it's a really good question. It's a tough one. There, there were places that I was going back to that I knew really well uh, in the first chapter, sorry, the second chapter, Return to the Source. Yeah, I go back to where I grew up in, in South London and, and I explore the, the woods of, of uh, Sydenham Hill and Dulwich. Um, and that was really important to me because it was a, a way of kind of thinking about why I'm interested in all this stuff. You know, what, what has led me to, to develop this particular fascination with, with London, with landscape and so on. Um, so that was important. But it was also great going to new places. Perhaps the place I was most excited about though was, was going to the Westminster Delta. What, what I call the Westminster Delta. You can't see this delta on a map, but it's if you strip away the, the streets and you just look at, at Westminster on a, a geological map, it looks exactly like the delta of a number of different streams. You've got the Tyburn, the Westburn, uh, Westbourne, sorry, the, the Effra on the other side of the Thames, the Thames itself. And it's this huge marshland with all these creeks and, and islands. And of course, on one of these islands is, is Westminster Abbey and, and the House of Parliament, an island known as Thorny, which literally means Thorn E, Island of Thorns. And, um, you know, that was such an exciting proposition to go to that extraordinary landscape where really there's not a great deal to see because it is obviously so built up and developed, but incredibly historic as well. And also moving through lots of different sorts of places, you know, some extremely posh places like Mayfair and, um, 
you know, walking through Pimlico, which you know, is, is a former marshland and has this great industrial heritage as well. So I loved going to Westminster. And um, I mean, that is also one of the, one of the chapters where, where I, I go looking for something quite special, which, you know, readers may, may or may not decide is something of a MacGuffin in the chapter, because I don't find it, but I do find something which I hope is, you know, is, it was exhilarating for me and I hope that I've captured that sensation for readers. Yeah, absolutely. That that does come across. But my own particular favourite was I lived in Bermondsey for about 10 years and you talk about Bermondsey and, and I'd always been aware of some form of, you know, river that, that was underneath Bermondsey. You used to live by the dockhead and, and you could see the, the river come through the dockhead and then it would stop. But then you knew it must go somewhere. It can't, it can't just stop. And I, I tried to find out a little about it and it is surprising how much you can find out if you you know if you go looking but very often you could walk past something every single day of your life in London and have absolutely no idea how important it was whether it be a tree a bench a house or somebody used to live here you know you can't move for blue plaques around here but <laughs> yeah. you, you could quite easily miss it couldn't you because we we, we just don't open our eyes we don't yeah. look we don't have the time yeah, absolutely. I mean, the um, and there's a kind of there's a, there's a strange paradox I think in London, which is that we have the world's oldest um, underground railway system, and, and so we, we are literally, as Londoners, and millions of us are are literally passing underneath the city through the geology of London every single day. But of course, staring at our phones or reading uh, the Metro, it's still around. And, and uh, there's, so there's this paradox that we don't think about the geology of London, even though we pass through it so regularly. Uh, and certainly, you mentioned. Dockhead in Bermondsey, which is a great place and somewhere that I think um, everyone should go and have a look at. But you're right, you, you're just walking, you know, down Tooley Street towards Jamaica, uh, Jamaica Road, and, and then there's just a kind of like a low wall and a kind of break in the in the street plan. And, and unless you go and stand on that little parapet and look over the wall, you wouldn't see what is the former mouth of the the underground river Neckinger. Uh, and it's a, it's a beautiful and atmospheric view also very Dickensian, I always think. Um, and of course, the Neckinger, one of the ditches attached to the Neckinger features in, um, in Oliver Twist. But, um, but as you say, you wouldn't see it if you walked past it, yeah. If people are listening to this conversation now, it will be towards the end of September, the book will have been out for a couple of weeks. At what stage in the writing, or had you got all the way through and completed the book, at what stage did the publishing company get involved did you have to complete this and then start to try and sell it or did you uh, manage to attract attention before you'd completed it yeah it was um i mean readers who are interested in this kind of process uh, may know that, that a lot of non-fiction books um are acquired by publishers on proposal um, which was the case with mine so i'd written these two early chapters one was about um was called hole in this in the city and it's about this extraordinary wasteland in Aldgate where i used to live and the other chapter was a uh, basically a prose version of one of these audio walking tours I did down the River Walbrook. So I had these two chapters and I had a chapter plan and I had an introduction uh, and that was what sold the book to the publisher. And the, the subsequent year and a half was, was writing the, the other six chapters and a coda and then kind of you know, doing some editorial work to try and bring those chapters into kind of a, a coherent relationship with each other. Often when I talk to actors or if you watch chat shows in which actors are interviewed about their film, it's often very difficult for them to cast their mind back because they 
you know, they would have turned up to do a three week shoot two and a half years ago and they get asked questions and they can't necessarily remember. You're about to start what I imagine is a fairly busy press tour and, uh, and walking and talking tour. How hard has it been for you if you had to really cast your mind back to the start oh, of this process to remember it, what it was I, like? Yeah, I mean, you know, Mark, it's, it's been very hard for me to talk about it because I mean, even thinking about the way that it was written and having these kind of two chapters that were written God, six, seven years ago, obviously they've been edited and hopefully improved. Um, and then, and then you know, one, some chapters were written in lockdown. So you, you're, you're looking at quite a long sort of gestation period but also a very intense one at the end because of lockdown, the pandemic. And then, of course, a lot of the book is about time because it's about geology. It's about deep time. And I found that genuinely quite difficult to reconcile in my mind, that sense of, of time, um, of deep time, of kind of writing the book time, of, of lockdown time. You know, I, I found it very confusing. But in a way, it's sort of on brand confusion in my case. I think I think on the notion of on-brand confusion, we'll we'll leave it there. Tom, thank you very much. The book, um, if you're listening now, is out. It is called London Clay Journeys in the Deep City. You're doing some talking events. I know you're at Southwark Cathedral in November, and tickets are on sale for that. But Tom, thank you very much. It's been an absolute pleasure. Oh, thank you so much, Mark. Absolute pleasure. Cheers conclusion a massive thank you then to tom for today's episode and to recap what have we learned when you've set out to write an exploratory book sometimes it's good to go into it without all the knowledge without knowing what you're going to find be prepared to surprise yourself but also understand you may not find the answers you'd hoped for you can evoke a powerful experience for your reader by awakening all their senses through your writing Smell, for instance, is a brilliant tool if you want to transport people to a certain time or place. The connection between place and event can often be so intimate. Take Flanders Field, for example. We weren't alive during the First World War, but the name alone floods us with memories and images of the past. Treat places like characters with their own stories and personalities. Make sure you honour and appreciate the present. When telling stories from the past, the tale of Jack the Ripper may have unfolded long ago, but the dark side of London still lingers. Practice sensitivity. We are the future ghosts of the city. When it comes to writing sequels to your books, always remember the legacy of past characters and consider how their actions may be viewed differently as time rolls on. And finally, take the time to open your eyes, look up, look down, and revel in the sights, structures, and constructs that surround you. Find a new fascination for the ordinary by remembering its history. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Haywood. Let me know what lesson you've taken away from this week's episode by sending an email to info at behindthespine.co.uk. We're also on Twitter and Facebook as at Behind the Spine, and Instagram as at Behind the Spine Podcast. In the meantime... Give us a like and leave a comment on Apple Podcasts. It really does help. Goodbye for now. Stay safe and keep writing. This podcast is produced by Ollie Giyu Podcast Production. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk.